0: Hello there, Documentarians. Uh, welcome uh, to yet another episode of The Documenteers. And we have for you today a very special episode. Yeah, they're all special, especially because I'm in all of them. But this one in particular crosses the threshold I knew we would get to. This is the episode where it happens. But more on that in a little bit. I just want to talk about some additional content related to the show that. If you want to check it out, we, of course, work with the Center for the Documentation of Documentaries. They document us documenting documentaries, and they put it on file for science. Their resident musicologist, Dr. Eugene Fudge, has created a 10-track playlist for every episode that we've done so far. You can find that at 8 That's the number 8, and then tracks... Dot com so see what uh, dr Eugene fudge has put together I think he hopes that it enhances your here's listening experience also make sure you give us five stars on iTunes leave us a little review we've gotten some feedback we we do have some people who have given us some five-star reviews and left us some Reviews uh, across a few platforms. And I just want to say thank you so much for your support. And we appreciate you taking the time and we appreciate you listening. So tell all your friends, the cool ones that like cool documentary movies, if you think they're cool, tell them. If you don't think they're cool, maybe hold off. Maybe. Or just be nice and tell them anyway. Maybe say, look, I don't know how cool you are, but there's this. Podcast called The Documenteers. Yeah, you can listen to it if you want, if you're cool enough, and then just walk away. The movie that we are discussing today is the film Call Me Lucky, directed by Bobcat Goldthwaite. Yeah, that guy. It is the story about the comedian turned activist Barry Crimmins. It is his life story. Barry Crimmins, who we unfortunately lost late last February at the age of 64. And it touches upon a point in his life where he experienced, specifically in his childhood, some serious trauma. And we will touch base on that. And I just want to let you know that that is coming. Uh, Barry Crimmins is an important figure in not only comedic history, but in the history of helping out those that need help the most. Call Me Lucky is available on Netflix, and I recommend watching it. You should just check it out. It's going to make you cry. It's also going to make you laugh, and it just might also reaffirm your faith in humanity, despite some of the fucked up shit you're going to hear in this movie. But I I think it is important, and not to give away too much of what we're going to say about it in the end. Just watch the movie, and thank you for being you. And now, on to the movie. That you can watch on Netflix right now, Call Me Lucky, directed by Bobcat Goldthwaite. Now, here is a motion picture film: a thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Well, I got caught smuggling books into Kentucky. <laughs> got off on a technicality no one could prove they were books. Barry Crimmins, the person in this documentary yes. that, that this documentary focuses on. Mm-hmm. He passed away February 28th. He was 64 years old and uh I knew I'd been wanting to watch this movie for a while.
1: Yeah, me too. I think it
0: was made in twenty fifteen. And when I heard he passed on, I thought, what better time to do it than right now.
1: Yeah, kind of like a memorial. Did you do you know how he died?
0: I don't. Uh and that's he, okay. He drank a lot. I don't think I'm worried about you
1: know, it. No, he did. He seemed I'm sure we'll talk about this, but I'm actually surprised that he was only sixty four. I thought he was perhaps older than that, even in the documentary.
0: I'm just going to assume that one of Ronald Reagan's children killed him. (laughs) Assassinated him.
1: Well, he was very outspoken against Reagan, and deservedly so.
0: You know, my grandmother, she wasn't a big Reagan fan in her day either. No. Yeah. She was, um, I wouldn't call her a super progressive, but I think at the time she saw Reagan as someone who was taken away Things from people that needed them.
1: Yeah.
0: And during my time as a very young child, school lunches were a thing that that were cut. Yeah. And that did affect her, and eventually I, I would get school free school lunches, which when I was young, I was ashamed of because it meant, like, I was maybe poor. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel that poor, but maybe technically we were poor.
1: Sure. But then I
0: got older, and it was like, I bragged about it. Yeah. Like, uh, y'all pay for this shit, and they just (laughs) give it to me. But y'all pay for it like fools. Because it was school lunch. It was shitty.
1: Rectangle pizza and fries.
0: I paid what it was worth. Nothing? (laughs) Nothing.
1: (laughs) Well, someone paid for it.
0: Hell yeah, the taxpayers did. (laughs) Thanks, taxpayers. (laughs) What's up, Docs? That's Docs with an X.
1: Hey, Docs.
0: This is the Documenteers. Yes. And uh we are discussing today a film by Bobcat Goldthwaite. We know Bobcat
1: I love Bobcat He's, I love Bobcat Goldthwait.
0: uh Bobcat's known for uh things like
1: <laughs> admittedly, my love for Bobcat is rooted in eighties films,
0: yeah, for sure, Police academy
1: one crazy summer, oh, speaking yeah. back to my uh long lost love.
0: John Cusack. John
1: Cusack's movies of the eighties.
0: Now you're more of a Joan Cusack kind of girl. Oh yeah. And Bobcat, <laughs> uh, he's also famous for.
1: He doesn't, you know, back in the day when you would hear him just even talking in interviews and things, he still kind of did that a little bit.
0: He would go in and out. He was,
1: but not so much now.
0: Well. Yeah, when I, uh, some interviews with Bobcat, I've heard several at this point. I am a big comedy fan, so he's comfortable with his past of doing that. Yeah, he's a comedian. He's
1: moved beyond it, though. Yeah. Yeah. I had only seen, I don't know how many you had seen, but I had only seen, to my knowledge, like one and a half other movies that he had directed. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize that he directed a ton of Comedy specials that I've definitely seen.
0: Right. He's did uh Patton Oswalt's newest special. He did
1: Eliza Sessinger. There's a lot. If you look at his IMDB as a director, there's like a ton of credits and most of them are comedy specials.
0: Yeah, he's done some TV work as well. Yeah. Famous for setting Jay Leno's furniture on fire on the tonight show. What if I what set his doing? furniture on fire? Oh, I'll set that on fire. Check that video out. It's Fun to watch Jay pissed off.
1: I don't think I've ever seen that.
0: We'll go down that journey later.
1: When I was little, I always equated Bobcat Goldthwait to, um, who is that cartoon caveman?
0: Captain Caveman? Captain Caveman. I'm surprised Bob went with that (laughs) shtick for so long because you watch his old standup and I'm like exhausted just kind of knowing that he's putting that on, you know? Yeah. Of course, he was on a lot of cocaine, so that probably helped a lot as well.
1: They talk about in this, this isn't skipping ahead, really, I don't think, but when he kind of his intro, he talks about just how crazy he was back then, yeah. and how he was always doing something off the wall, and I think he maybe did that and got really good response, and then just like stuck in it for so long.
0: oh, sure, I mean you're it's that validation, you know, and when you're a young comic on the scene, yeah, that validation, you get it any way you want it. It's also
1: hard to step out of something like that.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure. It seems like he's done a really good job, though. Yeah, for sure. Kind of carved his own piece out. He's doing things he can be proud of.
1: Yeah. This is definitely something I think he can be proud of.
0: Absolutely. It's not
1: a perfect documentary, and we'll talk about it, but I really— This story was a story that needed to be told, and I'm glad he told it.
0: In spite of its imperfections, which are very slight kind of you have to get a little nitpicky yeah that's true and they're there but there's so much important going on in this film that it yeah. just kind of outshines it pretty Absolutely. good it's easy to forget the imperfections yeah but yes we were talking about the film call me lucky biographical film about barry Crimmins. angela you and i do true crime related movies people who don't know the story of Barry Crimmins, or have not seen this documentary, they might be saying, Why are you doing a movie about a stand up comedian? Right. Well, it's just going to be that at first, but halfway through this, it becomes very serious. Yeah. And we discuss a crime that up to this point is definitely the worst crime we've covered. Absolutely is. But we go to Boston Common, October 20th, 1990. There's a an anti-war march. This is during the first Gulf War. Yeah. And we see Barry Crimmins working the crowd.
1: He is at the mic on the stage.
0: And it's very refreshing. Sometimes when you think of protesters or crowds protesting, like maybe it could be a very stuffy, self-serious environment. But Barry's on this microphone talking about the issues that he cares about and also being legitimately funny. Yes, But it's very inspiring to kind of see Barry bridge that gap. We see several comedians talking heads.
1: Yeah, this is a very talking head documentary.
0: As it would be with a lot of movies about comedy and comedians.
1: It makes sense because you want to talk to the people that he influenced, the people that knew him back in the day.
0: Who, Who do we see in this movie? We see... Steven Wright. Patton Oswalt. Mark Marin.
1: Dana Gould.
0: Baratunde Thurston. Margaret Cho. Some other guys I don't know that well. Lenny, someone, I forget his last name. He worked with them a lot in Boston. People are speaking in reverence of him as a, a comedian that's both notorious, frustrating, honest, and entertaining. Mm-hmm. Patton said that when... People maybe bring up somebody like Bill Hicks around him. Yeah. That he's like, well, if you think that's interesting, go back here to Barry Crimmins.
1: Yeah. I actually thought of Bill Hicks very quickly on because Bill Hicks before this is probably the closest to Barry Crimmins that I have been exposed to as far as a comedian who is going to use that platform to also speak about his politics. Very forthright and very. Yeah, I'm going to tell you a joke, but you also need to really hear what I'm saying right now. Yeah. And I I love that. I think it's very effective.
0: I was a big fan of Bill Hicks back in the day. Admittedly, mm-hmm. I'm not spinning his comedy as much these days. It's definitely of a time. Sure. And even though Barry Crimmins' comedy is like that, too, from what I saw in this movie, it almost feels like it might hold up a little better than Bill Hicks in I a agree. lot of ways. I agree. Comedians... Are going through a list of comparisons.
1: Yeah, there's also political people too, I should say, and friends from now and from his childhood that they talk to as well, and
0: his family, sisters and mother. Yeah, he's uh, described as a cross between <laughs> Ambrose Bierce and Charles Manson,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Noam Chomsky and Bluto from the Popeye cartoons. That might, <laughs> that might be my favorite. Yeah, Abby Hoffman and Audie Murphy, Will Rogers and Mark Twain. And Fidel Castro.
1: Just that he looks like Fidel Castro.
0: He's uh <laughs> in the early days, he's a stocky, hairy dude.
1: Just my type.
0: <laughs> yeah, he kind of crazy
1: hair, crazy beard, a little bit of a crazy look in his eye.
0: I kind of just look like a Welsh Barry Crimmins, really.
1: <laughs> yeah. He is talking at one point, and I wrote, this was one of the first things I wrote down that he actually said, because obviously they're showing clips of his comedy all over the place, but there's bits where he's doing sort of an interview with someone. I don't even know when this interview was, but it was at his comedy club back in the day, and they kind of keep going back to that interview. And he said basically his whole thing is that everybody should just treat each other well. And I'm paraphrasing this part, but that comedy is just a distraction from the bad things that are happening in our lives.
0: Yeah, he said that comedy has nothing to do with alleviating. Right. Which contradicts a lot of views of comedy that people just want to be entertained and forget. Most comedians kind of go by that credo. Sure. And it's an understandable, if you want a career, it's certainly an understandable path to take. But the Crimmins really didn't give a fuck if you were comfortable.
1: No, not at all.
0: He wanted to shake you. And he was talking about how this attitude towards comedy... Is kind of, it's making us weird and that we should shake that facade a little more. Bobcat is talking to Barry's sister. It's kind of alluding what we're going to talk about later. And he says to her, if you want to, I'm paraphrasing here. Mm -hmm. If you're ready to talk about it, this will be the time. Right. But we see an older Barry. And Barry is, he only passed away last February. Mm -hmm. He was alive during the making of this film. And we see him in a cabin in the woods, chopping, and a neighbor describes him as the finest person he's ever met. I thought this was a funny line. Stephen Wright said that he was like, if Thoreau could have a computer.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) He said at one point, too, Barry said two things that he wanted to do in this life was overthrow the government of the United States and overthrow the Catholic Church. (laughs) Those are his two life goals.
0: We see a clip of old stand-up of Barry's from 1982, and he, in a way, roundabout way, kind of predicts cable news and, like, war profiteering through media.
1: Yeah, he talks about why is there not a cable war channel?
0: Until the American people stop feeding its ratings, any fresh war is going to be fodder for these 24-hour cable news networks. Yeah. I don't know about you listeners at home, I would recommend not watching any 24-hour cable news network.
1: Yeah, regardless of which way you think they're leaning and whether you think they're agreeing with what you're thinking or not, you're getting filtered information.
0: Personally, I prefer to read the news. I encounter imperfections and biases all the time, but it just seems to be slightly better. I feel like I can analyze it a lot better and take things with a grain of salt in that way. And instead of just having voices that are most of the time not talking about the real issues, just pumping garbage at me, even like I'm a, I'm a liberal guy, but even the liberal news networks seem to be just so easily distracted and talking about everything, but the things that we really should be talking about. Right. But these are fed by views and ratings and people want to be, have a uh, wind blown up their ass, I guess. Barry's stand-up style is described by some friends as not profitable.
1: <laughs> yeah. Harsh political comedy.
0: And he's busting out anti Reagan jokes in the Reagan era. Yeah. And this is a big deal. Uh because Reagan he won his elections very handily. And now we look at this guy like he was born with a halo, angel wings of God growing out of his fucking no way. ass. And it's just a bunch of baloney. Another comedian talking about Barry asks a question regarding his comedy and how it's not exactly mainstream. He asks a question that I ask almost every time I watch a documentary that's focusing on somebody in it. How does he make money? Right. (laughs) We see Barry at his childhood home.
1: 27 State Street. Scan it. Sk- oh gosh, I meant to write this down phonetically.
0: Skittles. Sk- <laughs> scan,
1: scannilate. okay, it's spelled S K A N E A T E L E S, I think.
0: Skinatals,
1: New York, in New York. Um, it's a beautiful place.
0: I gotta look this up. Skinny, Skinatals, Skinatals.
1: Is there a little sound thing by it? You can push it and it'll say it for you.
0: I can't believe I've forgotten this. They said it a hundred times.
1: I know, but so much happened after that. Scan-a-ladies? No.
0: That sounds kind of right.
1: Scaniatalis. Scaniatalis? Scaniatalis. Scaniatalis? I don't know if that's right. Scaniatalis, New York. They just said. Scaniatalis. Say it really fast. Scaniatalis.
0: Scaniatalis. We're at a childhood home. Scaniatalis, New York.
1: It's a beautiful place. Skinyatilis, according to Barry, translates to lake surrounded by fascists.
0: <laughs> He's a small town liberal. He tells a story of uh, some people in his town saying in the 80s, like, I heard you did a an AIDS benefit. Yeah. What are you, like, gay or something? And his response was... Yeah, I do a lot of AIDS benefits.
1: He said, I'm whatever threatens you. I'm a communist with AIDS and I bite.
0: His sister said that everything was funny to Barry. I can relate to that.
1: He was born in Kiniston? Kingston.
0: Kingston, New York.
1: Kingston, New York. I was writing notes so quickly and fast that I can't read some of my own handwriting, <laughs> so please forgive. <laughs> that
0: he was born like... in Sam Kiniston, New York. <laughs> <laughs>
1: He was born in Kingston, New York on July 3rd. His mom actually tells this really sweet story about when he was really small, he thought the fireworks on July 4th were specifically for him. (laughs) And she just let him believe that. She didn't have to do a whole lot for his birthday when he was little because he just got so excited about the July 4th celebrations.
0: (laughs) Someone we know who has a kid once told me that having a child around is like having someone on LSD all the time. (laughs) So it makes sense (laughs) that a little kid would think the fireworks are for them. Uh,
1: Speaking of LSD.
0: (laughs) Barry's friends (laughs) tell a story of an outdoor festival in 73 that they went to.
1: Grateful Dead, the band, and the Allman Brothers.
0: There was a storm, and Barry, I guess he's tripping, and he runs out of his tent holding a little umbrella. Yeah. And a lightning bolt just strikes him strikes the umbrella he's holding
1: apparently he starts running around like did you guys see that like all like jazz about it
0: narrowly avoiding getting completely fried and this was represented in a little animated sequence i think uh sometimes when movies throw in these little animated things i often don't like it I, i like the visual style of it and thinking about it it's probably better than if Bobcat just got some stock footage of a rolling thunderstorm or something like that. Oh, sure. Sometimes that's a pet peeve, but it kind of worked in this moment, I felt like. Barry, when he was a kid, very steadily went to Catholic church every morning.
1: Yeah, his sister said that he would get up and go every morning earlier than everybody else.
0: Apparently, they have mass daily. I'm not Catholic, so that was kind of new to me, daily mass.
1: Yeah, this is when Barry first tells us about Father Nary,
0: Barry said that Father Neri didn't like him and that he looked like Christopher Lee, who played Dracula.
1: They did a very interesting kind of fade from Father Neri's face into a photo of Dracula. And it was it was I could understand why he thought that
0: Barry said that Father Neri made his life miserable He'd give him creepy shoulder rubs. Whenever Neri wanted to maybe take him into his car to go get ice cream, Barry was like, nah. He knew at a young age that something was off.
1: That's the reason Father Neary made his life miserable is because Barry rejected him. He actually said that the first time he called it the pedophile rub that Father Neary tried to rub his shoulder and he instinctually elbowed him. And from then on, it was kind of... I mean, Father Neary kept trying, but Barry kept...
0: Unless a kid's got, like, a muscle condition, like, why would you ever need to massage?
1: You shouldn't shoulder? touch a child. <laughs> yeah. I know that a lot of child abusers are people that you already know, which is why it makes it so scary.
0: Barry starts inviting people to a comedy thing, he describes it.
1: He starts an open mic, basically.
0: In his little New York town, Scenetalese.
1: Sure.
0: Skenetilis.
1: Skenetilis. I always want to call it Schenectady.
0: No. That's I know. another New York Don't get town.
1: confused. Skenetilis. Skenetilis. That is where Bobcat met Barry. Uh, Bobcat and one of the the guys from Mr. Show, one of the writers, I believe. I didn't catch his name. Tom Kenny. They talk about how they were quite a bit younger than Barry. I think they thought he was a lot older than he actually was.
0: <laughs> I think Tom Kenny thought he was like in his 40s at the time. Yeah,
1: he... They're talking about doing this open mic thing, and Bobcat's sort of the impetus, like, let's go do this, let's do this. Cause you know, Bobcat was always wanting to be the center of attention. Barry calls this guy's house to like set up when he's gonna come and stuff to the show, and his mom answers the phone. And after they hang up, she's like, Who was that? He says, Oh, it's this guy Barry's got this comedy thing. And she says, how old is he? And he said, I mean, like 40? And he wasn't. He wasn't at all. But that's like someone thinking you're way older than you are.
0: And they were like teenagers, young adults. Yeah,
1: but like a kid might think, you know, (laughs) that you were way older.
0: They were taken by Barry because he was very supportive of what they were trying to do. And his validation meant a lot to them. Bobcat does put himself in this movie. Not egregiously, though. No. No. It's He puts himself in it when it's appropriate, because he is personally connected with Barry.
1: That is one of the highest compliments I have for Bobcat in this place, because I did hear him do an interview about this back when the movie came out. I sort of had forgotten that he directed it. Admittedly, I didn't remember until most of the way through that he was the director, because I wasn't. I didn't look at the names at the beginning. I don't even know if it put his name at the beginning as the director, but... I know his voice was there a few times, but I still relate that Bobcat voice to that crazy voice. And so when you did hear him ask a few questions of people in the interview, it just didn't click with me that it was him. And I think it's a huge compliment to him that when he did put himself in the movie as one of those talking heads, it wasn't any different than anybody else. Yeah. I didn't realize in those moments, oh, yeah, right. He directed this. It was completely just like he was any other comedian talking about his relationship with this guy.
0: Prolific documentarians. Yes. Like a Herzog movie or an Errol Morris movie. And it's like, you know that these movies are their movies. But when you're watching a documentary of someone who you haven't watched a lot of documentaries of them, but you're right, it is a compliment to forget who truly directed it like that. Yeah. Because obviously the subject is more important. And Bob did do a really good job striking that balance.
1: He never did the whole like, and that's when I decided to make the, like, he never, you know, there was no talk of him in the process. Everything he said was about Barry.
0: Barry goes to Boston. He starts and runs a nightclub. I think they said it was like in a Chinese restaurant. It's a Chinese
1: restaurant called the Ding Ho. The Ding Ho. (laughs) And he, he started having amazing people perform at this club. Gilda Radner, like back in the day, before anybody knew who these people were.
0: Kevin Meany, Paula Poundstone. Yes. People that have been in this game for a long time.
1: He had a very high standard of who he would put on stage. He was really picky. And so these people really, it meant a lot to them that they got to perform there for him. One of the things I love the most that they talked about was that Barry actually helped incrementally raise the amount of money that these people were getting paid. It was another comedy club they were comparing it to. But if that store paid 20 a night, he would pay 25 So then that comedy club would go up to 30 and then he would go up to 35 And they basically, in this documentary, these comedians credited him with why comedians eventually were able to make like $400 on a gig.
0: And some comedians cite Barry as a big help in making some money during these days. Stephen Wright uh, told a story of Barry... Stephen Wright's great. One of the funniest comedians. He of all really time. is. When when Barry would pay him like thirty bucks, Barry would crunch up the money and throw it on the ground and yell, "Take it!" Yeah, <laughs> and he would do that every single time. It's kind of weird because we're telling people's jokes. We're not going to do that too much, but there's just moments that I thought were just very funny.
1: Well, just little things that let you into the character of who this guy was.
0: Barry was the king of comedy in boston during these these times and he was very direct with you if he didn't like your act he would tell you very quickly oh yeah jimmy tingle tells a story of how he came in to do five minutes ended up doing 20 25 because he brought
1: his whole family right
0: and barry heckles him (laughs) yelling out other comedians names that he thinks jimmy tingle is doing but after it was over barrywood t- took jimmy aside and basically coached him on how to get better and to be more real in his act david cross one of the many talking heads in this movie he noted that comedians respected him but comedians also had to go through him in the boston area and a lot of comedians were maybe irritated that They had to respect him because he did have a a lot of control of the scene in these days. And Patton would note how Barry would get people to laugh at very subversive things. Stephen Wright noted that two-thirds of the time he didn't even know what Barry was talking about because he would just go so deep. And he had such an intense knowledge of world affairs and politics.
1: Is this where he tells the story about, or someone tells the story about Barry Was up on stage and had done like five minutes of political type humor and was completely falling flat. No one was laughing at all. And he kind of paused for a second, and then he says to the crowd, "Okay, there's three branches of government." (laughs) And so he just—I just love—I just love the idea. I was telling my brother about this earlier today because I love the idea so much of a comedian trying to do this like elevated comedy, right? Like talking about current affairs and what's going on in the political world and realizing that. No one's getting it and sitting back and going, okay, let me teach you something. Uh, If you're going to be here, I might as well teach you something.
0: That was a Mark Barron. Was
1: that Mark Barron? I do love Mark Barron as well.
0: An older Barry is telling a story of how he met some war wounded people.
1: He was asked to speak to all these children and he talks about how they all had bandages and they had all lost limbs and... And he basically, like, he didn't even try to tell them jokes. He didn't try to laugh. He just said, listen, I do not hate you. I love you. My country has done this to you. We're in this war, and I'm sorry for that. I don't agree with that. Not every person feels that way, and you're beautiful, and all these wonderful things, right? Like, basically just saying, like, please know that I am a face of an American who understands your plight. And then he said that they, I'm um, sorry, <laughs> he said that, um, that the kids started beating their good arms against their chests to applaud for him. And that's when he said, like, that he had heard the sound of one hand clapping and how it was... Beautiful or something. And yeah. then I don't even know because I stopped writing because I was just bawling at that point.
0: Some powerful shots of Barry while he's telling the story and the lighting and the position of the camera.
1: Yeah, this was, this was a very emotional movie for me.
0: The emotions are just getting started.
1: I know, but that was the first time that I really got kind of choked up about this man who... Throughout the course of this film, I have completely fallen in love with this person, and I think he's probably one of the greatest people that ever has lived.
0: <laughs> Barry was always drinking, notorious. Even, oh, drinking and smoking. Even the older shots of Barry, he's still drinking. It's important to note that Barry isn't telling these kind of anecdotal comedian stories about himself. Other comedians are telling these stories about him. Oh, yeah. It's almost like a, like one of those oral history books like Please Kill Me or Live from New York where you read it, and it's the people that are telling the history. And Bobcat tells a story of how he got all coked up and just trashed a club. And the next day, he felt really bad, and everyone was fucking pissed at him. And Barry walked up to him.
1: Handed him a couple hundred bucks, told him to go home and figure it out.
0: He wasn't going to be able to do a show that night. He told him, yes, to go home and figure out what he's going to do with his life. Bobcat said that he was sober. Ever since.
1: But this was sort of the beginning of everybody at the ding-ho just getting coked out constantly.
0: There's a lot of coke in the comedy scene during these days.
1: And Barry hated it.
0: People would hide coke from him.
1: He knew it was happening. He had to have known it was happening, but they would make sure that no one one said anything in front of him. He never saw anything because they knew he would get pissed.
0: And not everyone that went through... Barry's comedy life was politically oriented towards his ideology, but they all noted that he was still influential on them based on the fact that he individually treated them very humanely. And they knew that Barry, regardless of what they thought, that Barry respected them because they were a human being.
1: He just wants people to be genuine.
0: Barry meets a woman named Sandy who lost her son in the war. Sandy Sheehan? I th- I didn't write the last name down. That sounds right.
1: Yeah, she had lost her son in the war, and she was she had gone down to Texas. God bless Texas. She was trying to get in front of George Bush. She wanted to look George Bush in the face, and she was having trouble getting people to listen to her. And so Barry went down there.
0: And Barry was a big support line for her. David Cross points out that Barry pretty much stopped trying to be funny. Barry was beginning, probably not beginning. I'm sure it was, <laughs> was building <been> for a
1: while. <laughs> yeah, for sure.
0: That, that the notion of comedy, as a lot of people know it, was not very appealing to Barry.
1: There's a clip from back then that they show, and under his name, it doesn't say comedian. It says humorist, and I'm positive that he requested that because he was talking about how he didn't really want to be associated with comedy because he hated those dumb jokes, and he just wanted everyone to be more creative and think more outside the box.
0: People would say that Barry would be very hard on people who would be a little different on opinions Mm. because he was so politically charged that People were often, like, on pins and needles around Barry in terms of what they would talk about sometimes.
1: Later, someone describes, like, later at the end of the documentary, someone describes this time with Barry as him being a raw nerve.
0: And he did not suffer hecklers at all.
1: Oh, no. We
0: see a clip of him specifically lasering in on a heckler and... If he did that at every show, then half of his shows had to have been him just, like, bitching out hecklers.
1: Yeah, but if they're going to keep speaking up, he's going to keep shutting them down for 10 minutes.
0: (laughs) He would go into a rage, and it was a lot, as people described. And then it stated, I forget exactly who says it, they say, looking back on a lot of this, his anger made sense.
1: So this is when he talks about his mom a little bit more, and she's in a nursing home right now, and he goes and visits her all the time. He talks about how when he was a little kid, she really liked black-eyed Susans. I didn't know that's what these flowers were called, but they're beautiful, like yellow flowers with these dark centers. And he used to go out and... Pick them for her, but he didn't understand about cutting flowers. So he would pull out clumps of black-eyed Susan's with the roots and dirt still attached at the bottom and bring them home to her. And it made her laugh and so happy that he kept doing that. He didn't realize until he was way older that he probably killed a bunch of plants because he (laughs) didn't know to not like pull them up by the roots.
0: She thought it was funny. Yeah. She never corrected. No,
1: because she thought it was so sweet. That sounds like something I would do. In nineteen
0: ninety-two. In a comedy club called Stitches, something happens, and it ain't funny. No. But Barry, he bears his soul in a monologue. He shifts topics to something that he's never told on stage before. Yeah. It was a pretty infamous moment for a lot of comedians at that time. But the audience was stunned to silence. And at this point, Barry is now telling these parts of the stories of his past. And as you'll find out here shortly, these aren't the kind of stories that other comedians can tell.
1: No. So Barry talks about how he was as a little kid, that he was a sweet little kid. He was cute. He had these curls. He got a lot of attention from a lot of people for being just this cute, sweet little kid. He and his two sisters used to be babysat by this girl, and she was his only babysitter. And after a while her mother's boyfriend started coming by when she was babysitting him. And sort of like what he mentions with the the priest kind of starting with like a touch, like he remembers like this man first touching his hair and it feeling wrong for the first time because he'd always gotten attention, but this felt like wrong attention. And pretty soon after this, the guy started coming over and taking him down into the basement and raping him. And he said he would scream and cry, but this guy would actually muffle his screams by pushing him into the couch cushions. Because he was being muffled into this couch, he actually passed out almost every time. He would be suffocated and then he would he would eventually come out of it. Um, this is when we go back to his sister. And we kind of circle back to that part where Bobcat asked her to tell the story. And she she broke my heart a little bit because she actually says to him, she says, it's not fair for you to ask me to tell this. But I think because she understood what they were trying to accomplish, she she did. But it was obviously very hard for her to talk about. And I think she she did because you know Bobcat said to her, like Barry considers you to be his hero because of what happened, and so basically she when she was five, she had gotten out of bed to try to find she she was a kid she got out of bed after she'd been put to bed when the babysitter was there and When she came out into the house, she couldn't find anybody. She couldn't find the babysitter. She couldn't find Barry. And so she went down into the basement and she saw him. And she talks about how he just looked at her. And she just knew in that moment when he looked at her that he needed help. And she tried to run. And I guess the babysitter tried to run after her, but she bit the babysitter. She somehow got away. And they didn't actually continue on with this part of the story, but because of everything that else was said, I'm assuming that she then told. Right. But a lot of damage had already been done at that point, but she saw it and then someone else knew. What were you going to say?
0: Yeah. I'm not sure where that went, but uh, judging by the sister's heroic reaction, she's five.
1: I know. Sorry.
0: Five years old has more courage. Oh, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is a hard one.
1: I knew it was going to be hard, but... <sighs> um... <sighs> it just... I mean, thank God nothing like this ever happened when we were kids, but I just... Like, I've always felt super protective of my little brother. And just the fact that someone would do this, that there are people who do things like this, just thinking about what Barry went through, but also, you know, thinking about what his sister went through in seeing this and knowing that this was happening. And the fact that this little five-year-old, like, knew that something was wrong and knew that she needed to stop it. I understand why she is his hero, right? Because,
0: And you understand why he's so angry.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was... They kind of cut straight to his friends after this. His childhood friends, are these four dudes that grew up with him sitting around a card table in a garage somewhere. And um, they talk about how once this came out, so many things about him started to make sense throughout their whole lives. They really felt like they had so much of a better understanding about where he came from.
0: Kevin Meany said that after this point in which Barry confessed this, it caused him to come to terms with his own abuse that he suffered when he was a kid. And Barry was open to him for that.
1: He talks about how Barry had called him years before because someone had told Barry that he was gay. And Barry basically called him and didn't ask him whether he was or not but just said, you know, if you are, that's totally cool. And at the time, Kevin was still saying, no, 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 I'm not. But then when all this happened, like, he knew Barry was someone that he could talk to. But yeah, that was just one example of how him telling this story helped other people to be able to talk about or at least come to terms with themselves.
0: Doctors tried to prescribe him drugs.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: So it was the first time he ever turned drugs down. Right. Barry, now that he has bared his soul on a level that he has not had before, becomes an advocate and seeks to help other survivors of molestation and childhood sexual abuse. Right. He went to Cleveland to seek other rape survivors.
1: When he was trying to become involved in in victim groups in real life, right? Um, Like physical groups going to try to talk with other people. He met with opposition because a lot of these victim-survivor groups were mostly female. And though, obviously, on a logical level, you can know that this man sitting in the circle with you was also a victim of a horrible crime and something was happened to him that was very similar to what happened to maybe a woman who had gone through the same thing. But a male presence in some of those spaces can be can feel very uncomfortable to these women. And so though he had things in common with these women, they didn't feel comfortable opening up in front of him. So when he tried to be part of these groups and part of this community in real life, he was sort of rejected. Yeah. And there's this woman, I didn't write her name down, but she was a lovely woman with red hair who he ended up talking to, and she became someone that he could talk to about things. I believe she was a prosecutor. Which kind of gets into the next bit is that what ended up happening and I think why he reached out to her was because the Internet was very new at this time. And at this point, we definitely did not have a computer or a house. A lot of houses and jobs, businesses did not have computers. But he turned to trying to go online to these chat rooms to find other people he could talk to. That was my understanding, was that that's where he started, was trying to find people he could talk to about what had happened to him. But instead of that, he encountered this online child pornography community. Yeah. And the way he described it is that as soon as you went into the room, even if you got there unintentionally, like you clicked on something and you were in a chat room, people would just start sending you files because they assumed that's what you wanted and they wanted to drag you in. And so that's how his how he discovered that this was a thing that was happening.
0: Apparently these early days of AOL chat rooms would have these chat rooms would have titles that yeah. would draw people in that were not that vague. Sometimes you could see how they would be vague where maybe Barry would be confused um, trying to trying to help people and I didn't write down the names but he went through like a list of certain names Of these groups. And it just seems kind of... We have the benefit of hindsight, but it just seems kind of like when he began to hunt these groups down and collect evidence of the crimes that they were committing, these rooms were just very kind of... They just seemed so blatant in what they were doing.
1: The Barry being Barry was like, what the fuck is this? Yes. And who the fuck is what? And so then, yeah, like you said, he started immediately trying to get... Evidence, he would actually, he would call, he wrote, he sent emails to AOL. He tried to shut these groups down to tell them what was happening.
0: And we know, if we know anything about Barry at this point, dude's a persistent motherfucker. Yes. And so you knew he was blowing them up. And of course, they would just be very dismissive and rude. Because at this time, early days of internet and AOL and how it functioned, You were paying for the internet based Mm -hmm. on the time that you were on.
1: Oh, yeah. And he talked about some of these guys or people. Sure, it wasn't all men. We're talking about how they were paying upwards of $1,000 a month for their AOL service because they were on there so much, because they were passing these files through and things like that. AOL
0: is literally making money off of the distribution of child pornography.
1: They're turning a blind eye to this ever-growing problem because they're profiting. He actually, at one point, because he knew he needed to get more evidence, he needed to get someone to give him more information so that he had more to go on. He actually would go in as someone who was interested to try to find out more about these people. And he also created an account where he was like two kids trying to like lure people Mm. to give him information and tell him things.
0: Like addresses and stuff like that. Yeah,
1: he was so in this world trying to understand who these people were so that he could get someone to listen to him to fight them that it's like all he did. He lost 100 pounds. One of his friends said that during this time he was like a shadow of a man. He He couldn't do anything else.
0: He was traumatizing himself by taking in this information. Yeah. this, This criminal evidence. Yeah. And basically cycling it over to law enforcement investigators.
1: Yeah, they talked about how it was obviously triggering painful memories for him. There was nothing about this that he enjoyed. He was not doing this in any way, shape, or form to get any sort of pleasure out of this. His entire goal was saving these children, protecting children that could be hurt, that had hopefully not been hurt yet.
0: And connecting with the pain that he would witness in these horrible images, talking about the eyes of the children
1: yeah
0: and and we talked about this uh, in another episode in our american jedi episode
1: right yeah
0: cuz there was a person in that movie that was a victim of rape mm-hmm. and sexual abuse we were a little upset at the jedi council in the woods
1: so was i who
0: were very did not seem to understand the grasp of how that horrible experience that she went through Um, is making her react to things now. Barry describes how he can relate to the the expressions that he sees on these poor children, Mm -hmm. and he sees that the way they look dead in the face, he understands firsthand how that is essentially a mode of survival. He's watching kids basically surviving Mm -hmm. as they're going through... The most horrific shit. Yeah, you could imagine.
1: Absolutely. Can I just say? I know this is on a side, but you brought it up. I did want to say about that Jedi Council situation with War Beauty. What was her name?
0: I'm forgetting her name, but
1: I really felt Paris. Paris. I really, um, Paris really got to me in that movie. She was, I thought, the most interesting person in that movie, and that scene upset me a ton because. She was a woman who's been victimized again and again, being made to explain the way that she naturally reacted in that situation to a table of men, not trying to understand her, condemning her even for the way she reacted in that situation. And that was extremely upsetting to me.
0: And questioning her her honest answers regarding that trauma as to how she can... um, make that work with their pretend laser sword swinging bullshit.
1: I really wanted her to tell them all to go fuck off and walk out of the room right then.
0: Well, we kind of did in the episode of America Jedi, which if you haven't heard.
1: You should listen to it. It's really good. I really, really enjoyed it. I did watch the film as well. The documentary is okay. The podcast is is really good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we meet a, a law enforcement guy. He's I a guess
1: prosecutor. A prosecutor. He's a prosecutor. Yeah, that that comes in. He talks about how he didn't even have computers in his office, so it was hard for him to grasp what was even being told to him at first.
0: And Barry is explaining to him, and it's kind of, it's hard to wrap your head around it these days. We are just inundated with technology. Mm -hmm. Even your grandma probably has a Facebook account that she's writing in all caps on and sending you links to Lucky Slots or some shit. But (laughs) Barry's explaining to him, how these online communities work and how people can connect with each other. They had no computers. This is literally his introduction to the internet yeah. through Barry Crimmins, who's pissed about pedophile rings online.
1: Yeah, this prosecutor talks about how they thought he was crazed. They probably weren't wrong. No, I mean, I'm sure he was in a frenzy because he was... He was probably on one hand excited that someone was finally listening to him, but he had so much information inside of him that he needed someone else to know because the burden of that had to be crippling. That's why he lost weight. I can't imagine he slept or ate to completely submerse yourself in that world for the sole purpose of trying to figure out as much as you can to help it and everyone you talk to no one understands. But the prosecutor was shook, but he was like, "You know what? This is wrong." and if what you're telling us is true we have to figure it out we have to help
0: well the the prosecutor points out he says very honestly that he left us with a big problem yeah because he opened the door to something that that maybe in their generation they were not prepared to think about or regulate in any way
1: well and 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 the bigger problem of like you cannot ignore this you have to handle it it has to be handled
0: we see Barry in front of a Senate meeting. We see Strom Thurmond, mm-hmm. who looks like, uh, a, like a a testicle with limbs. Uh, <laughs> Barry describes him as the pterodactyl of uh, yes. the Senate.
1: He's just talking circles about protecting children, protecting children, which is good, but he's not saying anything.
0: And this is 1995. Yeah. All the senators... None of these people know anything about the internet.
1: They pride themselves in not knowing anything about the internet. And they
0: kept saying that over and over and over again. And you see this shit today at these cinema hearings. It just seems like everyone's just anecdotal Xeroxes of each other. You know, sometimes you'll hear them when they're talking about climate change today. They'll be like, I'm not a scientist. You hear that bullshit a lot.
1: It's like, duh, you're not a scientist.
0: Yeah, we didn't elect you to science committee. (laughs) You fucking asshole. Uh, A representative from AOL named Bill Burrington is sitting next to Barry. Yeah. they sit in front of this Senate majority hearing. And uh, Barry's wearing his Jerry Garcia tie.
1: Barry looked great.
0: But he's there for fucking business. He really, yeah. It ain't joke time. And he points out that AOL has these chat rooms. And these chat rooms have titles that are made to draw pedophiles in. Burrington is dismissing a lot of Barry's claim. He's not saying that it's not true, but he's saying that Barry is overselling the problem.
1: Yeah, and he keeps going back again and again to the fact that AOL has parental controls. I felt frustrated listening to this. I cannot imagine how frustrated Barry was. I think that he held himself so well in this situation to be able to debate this with this man. And yes, he got fired up. But he didn't lose control. It was just very obvious how passionate he was. But the AOL guy kept saying, there's parental controls. There's parental controls to protect what the children see. And Barry just kept trying to explain to him that, one, some of these parents are the perpetrators of these crimes. Mm-hmm. And two, it's not necessarily like, yes, protecting what children see should be taken into consideration. But right now, it's what adults are looking at that is hurting children.
0: Barry's please are so impassioned Mm -hmm. that even a sociopathic lizard person in the U.S. Senate is being forced to acknowledge what he's talking about. Yeah, Bill Burrington states that when asked about what the punishment for these kind of transactions are, he says, and this is fucking shocking to me, Bill says, well, we have a, a three strikes and you're out policy.
1: I couldn't believe that.
0: That means you can send child porn two times before you get kicked out. The third time, according to him and his policies.
1: And that literally just speaks to the fact that they didn't want to cut these people off because of how much money they were making off of them. It's so disgusting. It's almost a, we caught you, don't let us catch you again, bullshit that's infuriating.
0: The Senate definitely moves on this. And AOL, kind of hard to believe that they had to be made to do this. Officially bans pedophile chat room.
1: They banned them, and they went to a zero tolerance policy starting at that time. So that if you're caught, you're out.
0: Wow! Pat yourselves on the back.
1: Right. Congratulations! You finally became decent people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Afterwards, Barry tours with Billy Bragg. Yeah. Billy Bragg, really
1: fun stuff.
0: Billy Bragg, total Silver Fox. Oh yeah, he's looking good for an older man. Yeah. Margaret Cho described the Barry Billy Bragg shows as like a socialist laughing. Margaret Cho describes Barry as the Goldie Hawn of their socialist laughing.
1: Yeah, they show the clip where they're playing and then they stop and Barry just walks in and tells a joke and then the music starts again and (laughs) Barry starts dancing like crazy. It was the most joy you see him have in this film and it made me... Extremely happy to see him in a better place.
0: Barry talks about how he, he met Gandhi's grandson and comment on how he could lose a few. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, where he met Gandhi's grandson was actually at an awards ceremony where he and Maya Angelou were both being honored for the work that they had done. So Barry was actually, that's how he was in a place to meet Gandhi's grandson was because he was somewhere where he was being recognized for the work that he had done on behalf of these these kids, and stopping this child porn.
0: Barry says of the Catholic Church, they mistreated me so much that they got me used to it. And he says, I'll know I'm in hell if there's popes and bishops there.
1: This is where way I meet Charles Bailey. He was a man who had come out about being abused by Neri, who was the father Neri that we talked about at the beginning.
0: Apparently Neri groomed many kids and would sexually abuse them.
1: From the numbers that They've been able to figure out at this point it was at least twenty five or twenty six boys
0: this guy you're talking about talks about how he would look up Neri's name just to see where he was and one time he did it, and Barry's name pops up and this is thoroughly fucked up. apparently, Barry said that well, he says he's he hopes there's a hell
1: and that nary's in it
0: and this motherfucker would oh god i don't even want to say it i know would would call his ejaculate the eucharist yeah the body of christ
1: mm.
0: he has anger for the catholic church which is well learned and but he also mentions that atheists are also too evangelical
1: i agree with that statement <laughs>
0: Talking about basically how he's just against this whole. You have to believe this. You have to yeah. not believe this. And he and he's just like my point is. I don't want to fucking talk about any of it. Right. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I think he voiced a lot of um, what a lot of people maybe are trying to explain about atheists. Because, I mean, if you split my hairs, I'm technically an atheist. But, but I understand how people react to them sometimes yeah. because I'm not an atheist first. I'm a fucking human being first. Right. And the whole point of me rejecting religion is that I don't have to fight the bullshit anymore. I don't have to fight the guilt and I don't want to have to fight it with a bunch of, I don't want to get in a room with a bunch of people all the time who feel exactly the same way that I do about everything. In this Mm -hmm. case, like atheists, I don't care what they got to say. Right. This is a process. It's it's a process of belief. You believe or you don't. And personally, I'm where I'm at based on the experiences that I have. Yeah. It wasn't because people told me what to believe or what not to believe. It's The conclusion that I came to myself, and everyone's got to come to this on their own. Yeah. And frankly... I don't want anyone to believe or not believe anything solely based on the fact that I'm telling them what I think it is or isn't.
1: Exactly. We talked about this recently, and I do not consider myself an atheist sort of for that very reason, because I don't believe that I know anything definitively. There's not anything about me that says I know exactly that nothing's happening. I know that something's happening. I know that we're here for some sort of reason or we're here for I don't believe any of those things. And so I guess technically I fall into the agnostic category, but it is mostly a rejection of not wanting to go into either extreme. You know, I don't align myself with someone who's then actively going to speak out against God or the lack of God.
0: If I'm filling out any kind of form, whether it be for some horseshit social network or whatever, a census or something, sure. and it asks me about my religion, I write N slash A. Yeah. Non-applicable. Yep. Because the answering of that question, it does not apply to how I live my life. Exactly. It's like you asked me what type of walrus I am. (laughs) It just doesn't fucking matter to me. Uh, We see an older Barry reading a post that he wrote. He says uh, that spiritually he feels like he has a huge debt to pay. And he's from the country of the heartbroken. He represents a place where people are hurting. And Barry's openness raised new levels of awareness. We can't take for granted that a lot of the legal actions that are taken against pedophiles and those who would share child pornography stemmed from Barry explaining to police and feds and prosecutors and old fart senators what the goddamn internet is and how it works and how people can take advantage of it. Right. Right. Barry defended his friends. Friends were very important to him. And we meet a mechanic from where Barry lives. This mechanic, you could tell he's a small town guy. And he's the small town, like a New York country boy almost. In the beginning, he talks about how Barry is one of the few customers he has that is that he lets into his home. And he points out that Barry... Helped him also overcome his own abuse. Yeah, growing up, he had another neighbor that was a veteran.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: It was Veterans Day, and Barry goes to him and says, "No one should be alone.
1: A vet shouldn't. A be vet alone. shouldn't
0: be alone on this day." And he makes him some food and sits with him. And then he said, and then he was just gone. Yeah, like a ghost.
1: He also talked about how sometimes he can tell that Barry has just come over and done things for him. Like, he'll wake up and his dishwasher will be unloaded. It's just so sweet.
0: Barry says you have to go through things, not around them. Through is the goal.
1: I don't know if he says this or someone says this about him, but that his gift is being able to convey things to people that they don't want to hear and make them understand it.
0: Barry says that when you figure people out, the source of people and the things that they may do, and we're all we're paraphrasing everything we're not verbatim any of these quotes he said when you figure out the source of people that you understand that certain things that might turn you off about people that in reality that it's a survival mechanism that they've developed from the things that they've been through in their life absolutely and when you recognize that it becomes easier to see how people can be beautiful even at times when they're You know, maybe make you angry or something. Barry visits his old neighborhood. We see a shot of some black-eyed Susans. I guess he didn't kill them all.
1: Yeah, there's still some surviving.
0: Barry goes into the basement where so many terrible things happen.
1: I kind of hated this part because I didn't feel like, I mean, I don't know if this was because Bobcat wanted to do it or Barry really wanted to do it or if he asked him to do it. I don't think that Barry would have done it if he... I don't think Barry would have let himself do anything he didn't really want to do. Right. Or wasn't okay with. Not that he wanted to, but he was okay with it for the sake of this. But this made me extremely uncomfortable, and I hated that he was put in this position, even though he seemed okay. It just...
0: I think discomfort is what you are supposed to feel.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I know, but it was, it was hard. It was hard to watch.
0: But Barry, he stands in the basement, and he goes, yep, nothing special.
1: He says, "Uh, I'm not a victim. I was, but I'm not anymore. I'm a witness." He owns that. He's not living his life, and he never has lived his life as a victim. But he wants to help people, and I think being back in that space too, like, kind of just affirmed to him that, like, this is not who I am.
0: When he looks back, he can he sees truly how strong that kid he used to be really was. Yeah. He said, "If that kid can survive, I can too." Yeah. Then he says, you can call me lucky. I'm not coming back here again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Bobcat talks. He says that Barry still has that fire, but it's less against the whole world and more targeted.
1: At the specific injustices that he sees.
0: David Cross points out that Barry is a reminder that an individual does have a lot of power. The respect is one thing. That when these comedians discuss Barry, they might be a little off-put by him sometimes from his stories in his past. Maybe sometimes they may think he's a little much, but every single damn one respects the shit out of him.
1: Absolutely. His family and his friends love him so much.
0: Bobcat says he thinks that Barry is a relative because Barry's opinion matters so much to him, and he knows that Barry will love him unconditionally. Barry's old childhood friends... <laughs> This is probably the funniest part of this whole movie where his childhood friends are sitting around, and it's one of his old buddies. He's probably a little drunk. He goes, He's like a real nice sailboat. When you see that sailboat, you just got to get on it. And you see one of his other friends just like bobbing his head down. down.
1: (laughs) It was amazing. That was. But that man was really trying to convey how he felt, and it was so genuine. And so...
0: (laughs) Barry says that our lives depend on the truth and that his drug of choice is friends. And that, folks, oh my gosh, (sighs) is the film Call Me Lucky about Barry Crimmins, directed by Bobcat Goldthwait. In our young podcast, this is easily the film that we've I'm speaking for me, but I think I'm speaking for you as well, that we are the most moved by.
1: Yeah, this was...
0: This in Heavy Metal Parking Lot.
1: <laughs> right! I think Heavy Metal Parking Lot's a distant two, but it's, it's number two. <laughs> this is a documentary that I feel everyone should see. I really... It's difficult, but it's a story that needs to be told. It's a story I had no idea about. Like I said, I'd heard Bobcat do an interview about it, I'd forgotten a lot of the second half of it where Barry became this person fighting for these children and trying to get regulations on this child pornography stuff. Like, this man is someone who was so influential in the comedy community and then so influential in the culture of men speaking out about their abuse and then again completely changed the way that Child pornography was regulated on the internet. This was a Barry Crimmons is an important man. He's an important man.
0: Whew. Now, Angela, we don't, uh, we don't raid under stars.
1: No, we sure don't.
0: We think stars are trash. Like Strom Thurman's testicles in the mid 90s, we think stars are worthless. <laughs> <clears throat> like Strom Thurman's penis, we find stars to be flaccid. Non functioning, and I don't know where I'm going with this. I
1: don't either. You,
0: you can give us stars on iTunes and reviews, that helps us out a lot.
1: Yeah, please do that.
0: It's the only time we'll truly accept it or on whatever podcast app you use. I've been seeing a few uh reviews popping up on other sources.
1: Nice, thank and you, and thank you, guys. you to everyone. Yeah, thank who you,
0: is supporting us right now. Uh, We're we're just coming, I feel like we're really getting some momentum. The the few people that have reached out to me, whether it be online or friends in person and those who have taken the time to kind of help us out, Mm because we're not asking for money. You know, we just want your time, maybe down the road, (laughs) ask for a dollar or two. But we want to pay our dues. And no matter what happens, this show that we're doing, we want it to be free for everyone. Absolutely. But we don't rate in stars. No. We rate in Hertzogs. Yes. I'm going to give one through five Hertzogs. You're going to give one through five Hertzogs. That result, we're going to combine them. And then this movie will be rated the best out of 10 Hertzogs. This time, though, Angela, you are going to tell us first how many Hertzogs would you give this movie? Call Me Lucky.
1: This is hard. It's not that hard. So the reason I say it's hard is because when I was thinking about just the way the documentary is made, I nitpicked a few little things about it.
0: There's a there's some stuff in the credits that are a little obnoxious. Yeah. James Franco doing a uh, like
1: auditioning to be Barry.
0: Yeah, and that
1: that was it kitschy. It wasn't even it was funny. Stupid. I didn't love all the animated bits. There was an animated bit at the end about yeah. the Pope that I was like, why are we doing this? Unfortunately,
0: um, that's not in the main part of the movie.
1: No, I, I did appreciate the animation Bob described about the older guys. It was really cool because it like animated the the friends, like the five friends, and then like made them younger and then put them in the middle of this like Grateful Dead concert, and that was cool. So I did appreciate that. Honestly, the fact that I didn't realize Bobcat was the director again is a giant compliment, just because he was able to be in the movie but not be that person. He, you only heard his voice in very specific moments where it made sense that you were hearing him ask a question so you would understand the answer I appreciate that as well because I do think that in the right moment that is necessary to give context when it's overused that's bad but it really wasn't in this in this film and I just I thought before we sat down to talk about this that I was going to give it one rating but I actually really think that and I know it's because it touched me so much but I feel like this is one of the Best and most important documentaries that I've seen, I really do um, and again, I think everyone should see it. I'm gonna give it five, ooh girl, I'm giving it five. I can't not i I get emotional about things regularly. I do get brought to tears by things happy and sad. I'm a very emotional person, but this really touched me, and i can't I can't really shake it like I feel like I wish I could have met this person. I seriously hold him in such a high regard, and I think that. The way the story was told was really good because it didn't start out with giving you those headlines, those sensational headlines, and, and telling you what was happening. It you got to know him first through his friends in a very brilliant way, and then he told his story, and it was it was important. Five,
0: I'm with you on all your nitpicks, but not not much farther than that. We there's not many at all. No, and this film represents so much. Importance that it just overshadows. It.
1: Absolutely. You know,
0: one of my favorite albums is uh, this record, Shake Some Action by The Flame and Groovies. Mm-hmm. And on this record, there's like two or three tracks that are like heavy-handed, bluesy riff tracks <laughs> that are very skippable. Sure. But the rest of the songs on there, one after the other, are such well-done, amazingly crafted power pop songs that it overshines these few skippable tracks that are on that record. I feel like this movie is does that equivalently in this same way.
1: Yeah.
0: I've seen a few things Bobcat Goldthwait has directed. There's one movie I couldn't finish. Yeah. Uh, another is like, all right, far and away, as far as directing is concerned, this might be the greatest thing Bobcat Goldthwait has ever done. Yeah, 100%. Hands down. He told this story of his friend and brother in comedy, Barry Crimmins, so well that, I mean, you heard us earlier on this show, folks. We we were very moved. You know, you're in touch with your emotions, maybe a little more than I do, but you heard me get emotional, and you can ask my wife here. <laughs> that doesn't happen as much as maybe she would like <laughs> for it to happen. But this story is it's just so powerful.
1: Yeah.
0: You just can't you can't help it. So it's a movie that needs to be seen. Yeah. And if you don't know the story of Barry Crimmins, and I knew a little bit about Barry Crimmins. I've heard some interviews with him over the years. I've when this movie first came out, I heard some interviews with him and Bobcat talking about this movie and even having a surface knowledge of what he'd been through. It still did not prepare me for the story that we sat through with this movie. It has to be seen. Mm -hmm. Five out of five Hertzogs. Yeah. You know what that means, Angela? Ten. Cue the TLC, because we've got perfect documentary.
1: Very quickly, before we close out, say, even if you just listen to this and now you're like, well, I know the story, watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. There's literally no way that we can convey this man by trying to retell this documentary to you. You need to watch this documentary.
0: There's so much said about Barry and so many people in this documentary. We... Probably didn't even get to half of it. So, and you know what? And it'll make you cry. It'll make you laugh your ass off. Oh, yeah. Do it. Rest in peace, Barry Crimmins. You got a 10 Hertzog documentary about you. Well done, Bobcat Goldthwaite. Yeah. Stay safe. If you've had some troubles, talk to somebody.
1: If you know of something happening to someone,
0: tell somebody. Tell
1: somebody. That is the biggest point of this. And that was Barry's whole thing was. It is our job to protect the innocent. It is our job. It is your job. If you know of a child who is being hurt, it is your responsibility to tell anyone and everyone who will listen to you until someone does something about it.
0: Watch each other's backs, respect each other, love each other, and keep on docking. It's up to us as a community to stand up for those who are unable to defend themselves. If you know someone who is a victim of childhood sexual abuse, then it is your responsibility to protect that child and inform the proper authorities. If you yourself are a victim of sexual abuse, then please know that what is being done to you is a criminal act and that you are not to blame for what you are going through. There are people out there that want to help. Telling someone about your abuse can bring about big changes in your life. I know that sometimes even a positive change can seem very daunting. But what's important is that the abuse against you must stop and that nobody deserves what is happening to you or to someone you love. You are not alone. If you need to speak to someone anonymously regarding child abuse, then please call the National Child Abuse Hotline at any time of day at 1-800-4-A-CHILD. That's 800 800- To speak with a trained individual regarding sexual abuse, then please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. For more information regarding the nature and prevention of childhood sexual abuse, then please visit www.rain.org. That's r a i n n O-R-G.